For any company that wants to compete, any technology company, startup or larger company, it has to have a robust ecosystem strategy. If you think you can do this just on your own, you're not going to survive. Welcome to Don't Break the Bank, Run It and Change It, a podcast for curious minds in the financial services industry. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and together with my co-host Brian Hayes, we've both worked for over 30 years in banking and banking IT before joining VMware. In today's episode, we're speaking with Zia Youssef, Senior Vice President for Strategic Ecosystems and Industry Solutions at VMware. Zia joined me in the office in London, so we took the opportunity to break out the microphones and record this for you. Zia has an incredible career history. We'll learn from him on the importance of the ecosystem, how companies need to reimagine the services they provide to their customers, whilst keeping an eye on the actual products and services they're there to provide. After all, not everyone is a software company. Zia discusses how startups and large incumbent companies approach the adoption of new technologies and the often overlooked role culture plays in achieving transformation whilst they try to reconcile with the past and promoting advancements for the future. Welcome, Zia. Great to have you with us in the office today. It's fantastic to be here. Pleasure. Okay, so can you give us a quick intro about you and your role? So I'm the Senior Vice President for Strategic Ecosystem and Industry Solutions. I joined about eight months ago. have the pleasure of leading a team that covers a broad range of ecosystem partners, so system integrators, hyperscalers, the Dell relationship, tech partners, industry solutions. From a career perspective then, how did you end up here? Um, It's been quite the the roundabout journey. I I started my career actually in healthcare at the World Bank. So I worked in Southern Africa for five years, then did a complete turnaround and ended up at Goldman in New York doing investment banking. So that was quite the shift. That's a big change. Uh, From there, moved to SAP. So I was an EVP there and and did a bunch of different things. I was head of strategy, started the design team, uh, which was exciting, and then ran ecosystem channel and a few other things. Then did a startup. It was in the IoT space around uh, smart parking of all things. A little bit of a stint at venture capital. And then after all those kind of operating roles and technology, basically, a little bit of investment banking. Ended up at Boston Consulting Group, where I was a senior partner on their tech practice for about six, seven years. And that's what then brought me to VMware. VMware was a client of BCGs. We kind of helped them on on a range of things. And at, at some point, Raghu, the CEO, and some members of the board said, hey, we'd love to have you. And, and I was excited about the vision, the direction, and working on the ecosystem. And here we are. Were you planning this as a career path? Yeah, what was it you wanted to do when you left school? Uh, was, yeah, no, virtualization was my dream. No, no look, it, it's certainly not. I actually, the World Bank and international development was, was a career path, if anything. My grandfather was foreign minister and part of the UN system, and the Commonwealth actually lived in London. And so I was kind of very interested in economic development and in emerging markets. So I thought I would be at the World Bank till the end of time and then went into the banking and honestly didn't like that. I distinctly remember a brown bag lunch at Goldman where they were trying to explain this complex derivative. One, I didn't understand it. Two, I actually didn't care that I didn't understand it. <laughs> and so the combination of the two kind of really led me to, you know, move somewhere else. And so I got into technology. But it's been great. I've had the privilege of doing a whole bunch of different things. And each one has had its own 
fantastic pieces to it. Okay. Looking back then, what would you say has been your career-defining moment? I would actually actually go back, honestly, to high school, Matthew. I basically failed high school up until grade 10. I did O-levels and A-levels of the British system and so on. Uh, in, in that day and age, there was a push to go into the sciences, and that's where I ended up and was not good at it. And so my mother pushed me, left it up to me, but pushed me to actually stay back a year and repeat the 10th grade, which the school didn't ask me to do. It was a mm -hmm. choice. And I switched from physics, chemistry, math to economics and accounting and so on. And that year, I went from basically 32nd out of 34 in, in grades to, I think it was second or third. Oh, wow. And, and so that was a really kind of life-changing moment from that perspective. It was just the wrong thing for me, and it wasn't the aptitude, and, and kudos to my parents to kind of make that switch. I mean, there have been other moments of change, but, but if that one had not gone right, I think it would have been a different situation. So I think that's probably the earliest one that we've heard of on, on this. That's, that's really good. So what's been your proudest moment then from a pro professional perspective? That's a good question. There have been moments of pride, I would say, throughout. The thing that I've enjoyed doing and has been the most difficult is I've, I've tended to switch industries fairly often and, and put myself into a situation, including honestly VMware, where I, I'm not exactly coming to VMware with 20 years of infrastructure and cloud background. So as I mentioned before, I went from healthcare, the World Bank, to Goldman Sachs and New York and investment banking. That was a big shift. From Goldman to technology and, and, uh, and SAP, that was a huge big shift. Quit that and went to, to Streetline, which was a startup 20-person company. So I think the ability and my joy in, and curiosity more than anything else of going and trying something new, that's something that I'm kind of proud of. The other would be either just kind of the startup piece of it, just creating something out of nothing, out of all those different jobs. That was quite different. And we sold that. Not enough for me to retire, enough for me to bum <laughs> around for a little bit. But but that was fantastic. It's a great experience. I read something where you said that you didn't want to be remembered as the parking guy. Yeah, there was a real danger of that because we, we were the first smart parking startup, literally. And I remember th there's extensive parking conferences in, in the U.S. at least. And I went to my first one, and, and this was obviously about 10 years ago. So, And uh, I remember we were at a table. We had an iPad and a sensor. We were putting sensors on the ground. And the booth next to me was selling orange cones. And, and I didn't quite appreciate that there was a differentiated market for orange cones, but there obviously was. And, and, the, and the booth next to us was selling those gates. And we were the only one in there that technology and app and iPad and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it was fantastic from that perspective, too. I've always enjoyed the challenge of rethinking and reinventing something. And that's only did it. Excellent. Excellent. And, and I did a real deep dive. All right, uh, let's get into it. We'll find out everything there is to know. Recently, Zia, I saw you on the Cube, and I thought it was a you know, very interesting conversation uh, that you had there around ecosystem reimagined. So, for our listeners, obviously, we want to get them to go and look at the Cube, and we'll put a, a link in the show notes. But you know, can you tell us a little bit about what does an ecosystem reimagined mean in the in you know in in, in the context of VMware and, you're, and what you're doing here? I use the word ecosystem very deliberately. I actually don't like the word alliances. It's one of those like 
if you really put it in a negative sense, it's like, let's go have lunch, dinner, sign a contract kind of thing. It's not that, but but that's how I kind of think about it sometimes. So for me, an ecosystem is, is a little bit like a spider's web where no single strand in of itself is that strong. But when you put it all together in a very thoughtful way, it can be a very significant both offensive and defensive capability. So what are those strands? It could be one of our hyperscaler partners, AWS, Azure, Google Cloud, connecting with and building a practice together with VMware, with a Deloitte and Accenture and HCL or Wipro, wh whoever those partners are. And for us as ecosystem orchestrators, thoughtfully thinking about those connection points and, and focusing in on those. So that's, that's kind of this ecosystem spider's web concept. For VMware, it's a very interesting moment where we need to be much more thoughtful, much more aggressive, much more deliberate in how we build our ecosystem capability. We have a rich history of working with the channel and a very successful one. We have a rich history and a very successful one working with technology partners. We OEM products. We have such a long history of innovation. A lot of that innovation depends on technology partnerships. So that's awesome. But as we go into the future of multi-cloud, of modern apps, of the edge, we need to more effectively invigorate different types of partners. So clearly, we cannot be multi-cloud without hyperscalers, because that is what yeah. kind of makes us multi-cloud. We have a rich, rich uh, set of solutions and history with AWS. We signed uh, recent contracts with Google and, and, and Azure. We have that with Oracle and, and AliCloud and so on. So pushing that angle, looking at marketplaces. So a multitude of ways that we need to work with hyperscalers to make sure that our customers can, can get that full spectrum of multi-cloud solutions. With system integrators, to take another category, System integrators, the large ones like Accenture and Deloitte or HCL, you know, um, Cognizant, et cetera, have a huge amount of influence and, and a breadth of capabilities that they provide our customers. Mm -hmm. And so working with those teams to make sure that the VMware hybrid cloud, multi-cloud message agenda solution becomes front and center to their hybrid cloud solutions is important. So we need to put a lot of emphasis on that. We have a history of, of that being more transactional and, and kind of, and we need to think about it in a broader context. And the last thing I'd say there is, we need to look at more verticalized solutions. And this is of course where the, the financial services piece comes in. Historically, VMware has not had to think about vertical solutions. We, you know, we're in the virtualization layer, Partly, who cares what, what workload is on top? But as you think about modern apps, as you think about uh, edge uh, solutions, we need to be more aware of the requirements and the demands from a retail company versus a financial services company versus a healthcare company. So putting all of those pieces together is what we're seeking to do and, and do much more effectively. So then from a partnering perspective, especially with such significant partners involved, and you name some names, how do you make it work being in between so many competing parties? You know, uh, it sounds like it could be fraught with danger. It, it can be. Um, uh, so you need to kind of hide away when you can. But, but no, seriously, the, the one thing I love about technology and have always loved about working on ecosystem topics is 
that is the very thing that you said, right? I mean, the world around technology is about cooperation. Mm -hmm. And so you can have a very competitive stance with one of your most important partners. Yeah. And, and that three-dimensional chess game, if you will, is what makes a partnership ecosystem type job in the technology industry so critical and, and so exciting as well. I think it's, it's about balancing different things. It's about getting them excited. It's about having them compete with each other to some degree for VMware's business, if you will. But at the end of the day, our customers are looking for an integrated solution. There, and it takes a village to deliver that. Mm -hmm. And so, again, we have to be thoughtful on how we put those together. Okay. So, given your pre-VMware experiences, how do you see the, the kind of the restated mission for financial services firms that want to be seen and operate as a tech company with a banking license? So, I'm not sure I completely agree with that, that framing, if you will. It's not about being a tech company with a banking license. I, I understand what you're saying, but I think technology like many other industries, is far more of a differentiator and a competitive weapon in the case of a company seeking to provide a, a range of financial services capabilities, right? And that was a really roundabout way of saying it. I, I don't think it's just a matter of flipping to become a tech company, if you will. But there are, you know, very significant technology innovations and changes that are happening in the financial services industry maybe to some degree even more disruptive than they are happening in other industries. And so whether you're a large commercial bank, investment bank, mortgage house, whatever, whether it's blockchain or AI or uh, you know, the advancements in mobile robotic process automation, it's a very significant series of, of, in some sense, a perfect storm of these technologies coming together. So any financial institution that isn't actively and aggressively taking a look at their technology capabilities is going to get left behind. To a large extent, I agree that financial services is an easy place for it because pretty much the commodity is virtualized already. You know, money money moves and it's just electronic. So so you you can kind of see that and how that goes. What about other industries then? I mean, do you see that that kind of tech company thinking coming to every industry or you know, you you know, what do yeah, you think? So, so let, let's unpack what it means to have a tech company thinking, right? Um, because there's different layers of the stack that has different implications for that, right? So if you look at infrastructure and cloud technology, um, the tech company thinking would be, let's move these products to the cloud. It will allow us to build applications faster. Our cost of deployment and maintaining the, all this stuff will be cheaper. We'll be able to you know, leverage capacity up and down and so on. So that almost every company on earth in some shape or form is, is either born in the cloud or thinking of moving to the cloud, right? If you look at mobile technology and what does it mean to be a think product-wise or technology-wise, if you don't have a mobile-first experience uh, for almost every company that has, and even if you're not a quote-unquote consumer, even if you're a individual human being in a business-to-business -business type of scenario, a mobile app and a mobile first experience is important. If you don't have a user-centric approach 
to how you build software and how you deploy software. All of us, you know, in our, you know, uh, certainly the people in, our, in your 30s or 40s or people that are in their 40s and 50s that are now in significant positions of, of leadership and management. Like I grew up playing Donkey Kong, you know, and, and Pac-Man, right? People five years later were playing, you know, starting to play sophisticated games. Their experience of technology and all the consumer apps, and then you go into a business environment and you're kind of maybe step back five years, right? Yeah. And so that user experience, that design thinking approach that's required is another kind of technology mindset that has to be there, right? If you will. The responsiveness from an institution. You can't call somebody, leave a voicemail, expect to get a call back two days later, we found, you know. So so there's I think the te- your question on what does a technology kind of mindset mean, there's a technology answer to that, as I pointed out. But there's also very much a how do you interact with your customers? How do you interact with your partners? How do you interact with your supply chain? It is far faster, 24 by 7, micro data. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's just a very different game, right, if yeah. you will. And you can be a oil and gas company, a financial institution, a you know delivery service that's you know setting you your chicken tandoori or like it doesn't matter right you have to think about technology as a foundational competitive capability so i love that answer we've talked quite a few times around digitized versus digital so that digital thinking and the design thinking and thinking from a customer and reimagining the whole mm-hmm. thing versus yep taking the old broken process and just automating it. So if that's then, you know, it's about reimagining the outcome and the journey, um, you know, from the people that you've been working with, you know, this role or, or prior, yeah, who, who can you point out that's really getting it right? Who are the leading lights and, and who can we learn from? And, you know, I, I, people obviously jump into, oh, it's all about Netflix taking out Blockbuster, you know, but there's got to be some, some more modern, more real example. If you just look at your day-to-day services, and I'm not picking any one industry or sort of one company, if you look at how you travel today, it is foundationally different than even five years ago, right? In terms of your digital experience, mm-hmm. travel agents, maybe, <laughs> but I haven't kind of spoken to one in at least 10 years and so on. But how you get tickets, how you change flights, how you order food, I, don't, I mean, all of that whole thing, and also from a retail perspective, very different kind of experience, right? And I think that's been, it's just you people forget that you had to call an airline and go through pricing and go through different segments and book a ticket and give you a credit card. And then heaven forbid you had to cancel or change something, you'd have to call, I mean, you tell somebody you had to call somebody to change your ticket today, they'd be like, what are you talking about? This was not that long ago, right? So foundationally very different. Um, if you look at the retail sector, you, you can't help but kind of look at what Amazon has done and, and other kind of retail stores. Foundationally, fundamentally, forever has changed the consumer experience and expectations, right? And then I would say financial services, right? I mean, I haven't walked into a branch bank for years. Mm-hmm. There's no reason to. It used to be the case that you had to go in to deposit a check. Now you don't even need to do that. You know, foreign exchange, I mean, the UK uh, today, you had to take cash, go to a travel, you know, a change Mm -hmm. person at the airport. 
You just go to an ATM, take our local pump. I mean, it's just, and yesterday we were at a farmer's market in, in Kensington, just kind of putzing around. And they wouldn't take cash. They were like, take a card, right? And so it's just, I think people forget how foundationally our lives have changed in a relatively short period of time. And I think technology has been in some sense that great equalizer. There's mm -hmm. a lot of people in the world that still don't have access to their digital services. The digital divide is very real. Even in the US, it's very real but still great progress. Well, I have to tell you that I think the digital divide is there still between the example you've just used and, and how we experience it because there's still a lot of you have to phone up to get your airline ticket changed. And and I think there's also, I mean, this is just a pet peeve, if you like, but I think a lot of, a lot of firms who haven't made the transition are still hiding behind the issues that COVID gave on demand and, and still riding that out, that you're now in a queue of 100 and something people and we're going to be ages before we get to you because they haven't invested in those digital services. So, I, you know, I, I, I think... That's very true. Yeah. And, and look, I think COVID had obviously a massive amount of negative impact on all of us, right? I mean, for the people that suffered and, and economic impact, health impact, societal impact. The impact on the digital side and the digital mm -hmm. transformation journey was was a little bit the opposite because people woke up and like, oh my God, like our entire IT staff is now in 50 different cities. They're not coming into work. You know, what do we do? So it accelerated digital transformation. It accelerated the move to cloud. It accelerated the demand for mobile technology. And then there's obviously the whole work from home thing, which is still kind of, you know, being figured out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what about government and public sector, you know, again, you know, looking at different different places, different cultures. I've you know, worked in a number of countries as, as, a, as a view. There's a different level of acceptance as to what as to yeah. you know, what could okay. be there. I, I would answer it in, in, in from three different angles. I think it's three different angles. The first is what I would say is, is citizen services. Yeah. So your driver's license renewal, your you know you have to pay this fine. You want to complain about the potholes and so on and so forth. Again, I think a fair amount of 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 improvement being made. Certainly, in some emerging countries, they've been able to kind of skip a generation. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. I mean, in the in the U.S., different counties, different cities are at different stages of this. In some places, you still have to go in. In other places, I live in California. You know, you, now you can, you know, renew licenses and all of that. So I think citizen services is, is one layer to this. Then you've got, you know, public infrastructure and the technology that's being used there on renewable energy, the technology that's being used on, on roads and air transportation and so on. So that's a whole other layer of this that that is benefiting that honestly most countries in the world maybe exception of China or Japan, has been underinvested on the technology related to, to that infrastructure, if you will. And then there's the whole kind of defense side of it where there's all kinds of, of enhancements happening and on, on AI and, and augmented reality and, and so on and so forth. And so I think on the citizen services and, and some of the things that would impact you and me on a day-to-day -day basis, it's a fantastic opportunity for governments, for cities, for states to dramatically increase the level of service they provide. 
at a far lower cost. I mean, the, the benefit ratio is so high in these situations. And unfortunately, in many cases, you get stuck in where the, honestly, the RFP and procurement rules yeah. don't match up and haven't been upgraded to what you can do today from a technology perspective. And my startup was in the smart parking space, so I spent a fair degree of my personal time kind of selling to city governments and so on and so forth. And so laws have to be updated yeah. to take advantage of the significant change in technology, including, by the way, privacy laws, right? I mean, mm -hmm. there's, there's that the other side of it, which is, which is dangerous. That's, uh, that's interesting as well. You know, that, the whole gambit of what needs to change, it's not just the one bit that you're necessarily going after. So thinking back then to my question around everyone's a tech firm, do you think it's wishful thinking or, you know, do you think it can be done and, and is it easy and should, should it be done? Well, again, I'm not sure I agree with the statement that every firm is a tech firm. There was a phrase that was used where everybody's a, every company is a software company, which is <laughs> similar to what you're saying. But I do think that the component of software and technology is probably the most significant component of differentiation for almost any company. And, and the only reason I make a slightly finer point on that is, you know, for a Starbucks or a United Airlines or a British Airways, technology is such a huge piece of what they do, but they're still in the airline business. Yeah. Right? They still need to be able to provide an end-to-end. -end. They still need to fly planes. They need to kind of land the planes, hopefully, as well. Uh, for a Starbucks or any other kind of retailer, Marks & Spencer, there's a whole retail side of that. Can they leverage technology? Should they leverage technology? 100% yes. Is there all kinds of things they need to do there? Yes. But they need to do it in service of their business model. They need to do it in service of the kind of a value proposition that they can provide to their customers in, in what they do. But I don't think British Airways or Air France turns on and says we're a technology company. So it's a very, it's a fine no, like line. It. It's like a it. fine line, Matthew. And because I've had this discussion as a senior partner at BCG, I advised a lot of different companies and, and I was leading the IoT business. So including on the IoT side, where you had industrial companies. Oh, do we need to become an, yeah, but you still need to build generators. You still need to build locomotives. You can leverage technology like crazy to get data and information and real time and real time maintenance and all of those things. But technology, I mean, I've spent my entire career in technology, but Technology in of itself is yeah. not a goal. No, no, no. It's in the service of providing a valuable, cost-effective product or solution or service to your customers, individuals. And you have to keep that in mind. Yeah, I, I, I'm fully with you. I've kind of talked this one through a few times as well. Is that there's the the thought that who would you rather put your financial well-being with, a tech firm? that happens to do some banking stuff or a financial services firm who's really good at tech. And I, you know, I, I kind of know which way of that I would go for. Which way would you go? <laughs> I'd go with the financial services firm that understands all about risk, understands all about what they, you know, their, their regulatory obligations, the, the, you know, everything they need to know about, about my privacy. And they, you know, they, hopefully they've built their position in the market around trust versus a tech firm that yeah that, you know, can kind of see, oh, a smart UI and some clever offer. Now I'll worry about all of those other things. So, so I, I think that's generally true. My following answer would be true, whether it's a, whether it's a tech firm versus 
an established incumbent in mm -hmm. financial services or retail or healthcare or anything else, right? When you say tech firm, what I would say is, if you change that wording a little bit and say a technology disruptor, mm -hmm. right? If a disruptor comes into the market and you look at Stripe, what they're doing on financial services, yep. you look yep. at what Square has done or what PayPal to some degree and so on, they had a technology first angle, but more importantly, they were disrupting and are disrupting the business model. And, and they're bringing down significantly the cost of, of transactions in this case and so on. So in that situation, I mean, you will have disruptors come into every industry, automotive companies and so on, that generally have much more of a technology reliance in terms of what they're disrupting. Yeah, yeah. And they're doing extremely well. So for me, it's incumbents with an established business model. It doesn't matter whether you're a financial institution or a farmer or you know whatever, versus somebody who's coming in with leveraging technology in a much more aggressive, thoughtful way with a disruptive business model. Okay. And especially when you think, look at things like blockchain and so on and so forth, right? How much of that disruption is going to happen in financial services? Yeah, yeah. Well, let's do the crypto thing another time because uh, I think we, we started a conversation on that a while ago. So following on that, though, and, and particularly your experiences living and working in Silicon Valley and thinking about fintechs and, and more, more broadly startups, where do you see that kind of like the startup community gaining momentum with, with those established players? And, and what strategies do you think the incumbents should be taking? Complex, multidimensional question, right? The, the startup world is, continues to be robust, continues to have billions of dollars of, of money poured into it. These days, it's a little <laughs> exciting because valuations have gone down, but that really doesn't matter from that perspective. It's been incredible to see how people have looked at existing business models and existing technology platforms and have said, we have a much better, more disruptive way to do this. I mean, you, again, you look at the normal examples, Airbnb, Netflix, mm -hmm. I mean, you, you can go on and on, right? And they will be disrupted. I mean, Netflix right now is is kind of, you know, suffering from, from a range of things and they'll have to look at this. So I, I think the the it's a big question, but the startup communities will continue to disrupt. The incumbents, the larger companies have had a range of successes to respond to this, right? Mm -hmm. In general, a large company, and this is kind of my one of my favorite books of all time, is The Innovator's Dilemma by Clay Christian, right? Now, he did, before he passed away, God rest all, he wrote a book called The Innovator's Solution, which I'm not sure kind of completely answered that question. But, but that Innovator's Dilemma concept is so true. For a larger company, you're wedded to your business model you're getting good returns from it. Improving that 10% gives you another $2 billion. It's very difficult to go back and, and disrupt yeah. your own business. And I mean, it, it, everybody has tried, you know, do startups, invest in companies, create separate divisions. But honestly, culture eats strategy for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And uh, it's a very, very hard thing to do. Mm -hmm. I like, I mean, I've been a startup CEO, but I also like working with large companies because the opportunity for impact is much larger. Right? Yeah, yeah. You have a much larger customer base, and, and if you can move the needle 
in a thoughtful way. And if you look at just the technology industry, the transition from on-premise to subscription, SaaS, has been one of those foundational changes that has challenged the so-called tech companies. And I say so-called because they themselves, who are the vanguards of change and you know, innovation, have had a difficult time making this transition. So now imagine a company that's more industrial, hasn't had that technology background, how difficult it would be for them mm. to make some of that transition. So then, with that in mind, how do you see platform plays and building ecosystems and maybe building marketplaces working out? Because it kind of sounds, it sounds like that could be quite disjointed for consumers. Is that the next battleground? Yeah, so I think you have to look at it, again, industry by industry. But you mentioned the word ecosystem, marketplaces, and so on, right? Let's just take the technology industry first. Whether it's VMware or, or any other large tech company, you can only be successful if you truly leverage and put together a very significant ecosystem of complementary solutions. You look at, I mean, the iPhone is successful because of the app ecosystem. Salesforce is successful because they've built up a huge ecosystem of partners on force.com. Same with Microsoft and so on. Building that ecosystem, not easy. Uh, we talked about this earlier, but has huge advantages in terms of the resilience of, of what you're trying to do. Marketplaces like the one that you know AWS has or Microsoft has or Google has, has been a fantastic innovation that allows for easy discovery of solution, allows for transactions and, and to do them quickly, even for B2B solutions. And you see these hyperscalers doing a significant amount of business through these marketplaces, especially as their business model has required these kind of committed contracts and they use it to kind of draw down contracts and so on. So for any company that wants to compete, any technology company, startup or larger company, it has to have a robust ecosystem strategy. If you think you can do this just on your own, you're not going to survive at all. Now, if you look at other industries, and it doesn't matter which one it is, the same logic applies. Partnerships, especially technology partnerships for more established companies, have given them capabilities to accelerate their pace of innovation rather than just building it themselves, right? So it really is the name of the game. You, you will, in my view, be as strong as your ecosystem is. So let's move on then and let's talk a bit more or talk about transformation. Sure. So it's a word that's used a lot. And I think, you know, many, many billable hours have gone against uh, that term. So from your perspective, what does it take to truly enable transformation? You know, we know about some cool tech and a new mission statement, but, you know, it's, surely it's got to be more than that. Culture. It honestly, I mean, it, it's a very non-techy answer. But when you talk about a transformation journey, a lot of time is spent on the technology transformation, and it's important. A lot of time is spent on the business process transformation and the business model transformation, super important. Not enough time is spent on the people side of it and the cultural transformation. And that really is either the accelerant or the thing that keeps things back. And I wish more companies would take that more seriously. But people are interesting beings, right? I mean, they focus in on the, you know, people talk about hard skills and soft skills. I talk about hard skills and harder skills. <laughs> you know, people will gen uh, gravitate towards the business discussion and the technology discussion and, 
you know, we'll charge a revenue share versus we'll charge a cost plus and all that kind of stuff. And then you've got people that don't have the right incentives, don't have the skills, still are looking at their world very differently, loss of power and et cetera, et cetera. So I think putting the people-related issues at the center of your transformation journey is probably, in my view, the, the single most important thing you can do to try and make that make that happen. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, we talk a lot about people, process, and then technology. And, and getting that combination, I think, with people first, very important. Well, most companies don't do it, though, Matthew. No. Most, most companies will... They'll start with business model. They'll try and figure out what technology, and then we're like, okay, who do we have to go do this? Yeah, right? yeah. And it's it's a it's a tricky thing because on one hand, I mean, you really need to architect the social change as much as you architect the technology change or the business model change, and that means, you know, having people that have the history and and legacy of your business, they're very valuable but also bring in then people that have more of an updated view on the technology and a perspective. Mm -hmm. And it's not that one is worse or better than the other. It's how do you use that combination in a different way than you have before. So do you think it's ever done? Yeah, it is done. It is done for sure. I mean, you, you have companies that have been through a transformation. You, I mean, you take a, you take a look at companies like Amazon and Microsoft. I mean, you started from Amazon, from books to everything on the planet that you can sell. And, and you have Amazon Web Services, which started as a simple idea and is now a massive company. So that's a change, right? It's significant there. You look at Microsoft with Satya, the CEO coming on board, very different view on technology and partnerships and a mm -hmm. much more openness, if you will. Clarity, mobile first, cloud first. Yeah. That's it. Right? Yeah, yeah. Let's let's move on, right? And then the very hard kind of cultural change. And I would say, you know, VMware is is very much on that journey as well, right? We focused in on multi-cloud. We focused in on modern apps with intrinsic security and and you know what we do for the mobile workers. That's a very clear strategy and approach. We're on that journey, and we're on that transformation journey for for sure. So what about the change in methodology or the change in approach from the, you know, the heavily planned out waterfall to the more agile, let's get something out rather than wait and get the perfect solution out? You know, and again, in FS, there's not been a lot of leeway given by regulators for putting something out that fails, but equally there's there's those startups and the people that are thinking differently that can get away with it. So, you know, how do you get that right balance? And you know, what do you, what do you think on that pursuit of something versus perfection? Yeah, th that's a that's a good question, right? And it has it has multiple angles to it. I think SaaS technology, if I give you a technology answer first, has allowed you to basically be on a permanent beta. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, if you look at the Google website, if you really know the Google website or, or anything else, or, or, or it's constantly changing. You just don't know it. I mean, the Amazon website is constantly doing beta analysis and so on. And so when you're delivering a single product to a lot of different people on a single source code in most cases, you can experiment like crazy and you can see what happens there. I think broadly speaking, there is much more of a recognition, less than it should be, but much more of a recognition of 
experimenting, of design thinking, of focus on users. The worst thing is to get a business plan that has six months of research, that has a hockey stick, and there's a big board meeting, and then you get approval. By the time you get that approval, things have probably changed. Yeah, yeah. I would rather give a team, you know, $1,000, $5,000, $10,000, and say, go actually build something on paper, go talk to people, and, and come back in two weeks, you'll be so much more knowledgeable, right? So call it agile methodology, agile approach. Technology allows you to iterate much faster and much more cheaper than ever before. And I think companies kind of need to take advantage of that. And, and they do to some degree, but there's still not enough of a experimentation on business model, I would say. Okay. Now, there, yeah, there's the regulatory stuff. So you, you certainly if you're in regulated industry, it, it does limit you. But you can still run pilots and in all kinds of different ways without kind of putting it out in a big way. Yeah, so I, I think what I took from your answer, though, was the, the importance of having the right architecture and the importance of having that try and fail, fail fast, fail forward, rather than get the perfect plan, get your back out worked out, get it, you know, do the whole, the, all of that, all of yeah. those. I mean, this 80-20 this thing <laughs> is just phenomenal. Right. I mean, it's just uh, and, and we do it with our teams as well. 20 percent of the things answer 80 percent of the work that you need to do. So trying to figure out what impact you're really looking for is is really key right? okay. rather than the process and the activities. What what is it the behavior change that you're really looking for and what's the fastest path to that? So one last question before we move on. You mentioned the word impact. What's your take on ESG in, in this whole context? You know, there's, there's a lot of things, a lot of things changing, but there's a big spotlight on ESG in firms now. So what's your take on ESG? Look, uh, we only, uh, if you look at the E part of it, right? Uh, I mean, the governance piece, uh, obviously, there's a lot there. Um, we only have one planet, certainly in the last couple of years, for the lay person who isn't deep into this topic, you notice just in your own life the impact of climate change, and I think people are just more, more aware of it. The part that I wish we did better and I think would make a difference uh, is the in accounting rules, <laughs> when we look at profit and loss, and that profit and loss converts into people having a perception on the stock price. We don't today take into account the true cost of products. So the true cost from a broader economic perspective, and I don't just mean an environmental perspective. So a, a pallet goes from you know, Shenzhen to Shanghai, gets on a ship, goes to San Francisco, gets on a truck, you know, goes to whatever Seattle. There's a cost that you pay the shippers and there's a cost you pay for whatever transportation. But that PNL statement, that official PNL statement, doesn't capture the carbon cost related to it, the economic mm. impact related to it, and so on. So it, it, this may be a little strange answer to, but I, I think the accounting and economics of how we run our lives needs to change. And if that happens, people will kind of understand the, the true impact of that. We are custodians of this planet for the next generation. And we're not doing a great job of it. And, and unfortunately, until many of us, you know, have more hot days in the summer than we've ever had before, and you have floods like you do in Pakistan and other parts of the world, hopefully that, you know, generates more change than not. But 
it's important piece of where VMware takes it seriously, seeks to play the role that, that it can, but it's all our responsibility. All right, let's move on to the crystal ball then. I see the future. Really? Well, what do you have, a crystal ball? What's going to happen? Listen, if you know something, you got to tell me. What do you think will be one of the most significant game-changing technologies for 2022 and beyond? And how do you think that's going to help or hinder financial services? I think there's only one answer to this question. Blockchain. It's not blockchain. <laughs> it's not crypto. It's AI and machine learning. Now, I mean, that seeps into blockchain and crypto as well. But, but in terms of the impact of artificial intelligence on every aspect of technology is, is profound. And, and I'll tell you the good sides of it. There's also potentially other sides to it, right? Robotic process automation, the mundane or repetitive tasks that a bank needs to do, heavily impacted by AI. Therefore, reducing the cost of providing the service, therefore, hopefully reducing the fees and costs that you pay, higher level of service, mobile, etc. So I, I think the development of AI technology and AI-infused apps, no app is written today without AI infused into it, but really kind of up-leveling, especially if you combine that with quantum computing, where the, the number of processing and the speed and complexity of the calculations that can be done will be will be mind-boggling. So I, I think AI in general is is generationally transformative. There are things that things, apps, technologies that rely on that heavily, like robotic process automation, like crypto and, and other things. But at the kernel of that, at the foundation of that is AI. Okay. Well, so look, I joked about blockchain, but I, I thought you were going to say something to do with IoT. So uh, so interesting. Like, well, know. I mean, that, that in some sense would be my next one because, because I think even bigger than the internet is the convergence of the digital and physical space, right? And the word IoT <laughs> is kind of in some sense irrelevant now. We are surrounded by it. We're, we're interacting with cars. We're interacting with machines on the street. We're interacting with all kinds of devices in the physical world far more significantly than people even realize today. And that will continue to converge. And of course, again, AI is, is kind of keeping all of that together. Yeah, fabulous answer. Fabulous answer. Okay. Uh, let's move on. This is the final round. This is the fun round. This is actually the round everybody I've still really been comes having for. Fun. <laughs> uh, we usually call it the lightning round. Okay, welcome to the super awesome bonus lightning round. The lightning round begins now. So you are allowed to pass, but if you do pass at the next team meeting, we'll absolutely have some fun at your Go expense. So let's make a start then. What's your favorite book or movie? Godfather. Oh, okay. What would you be doing if you weren't doing this right now? Oh, drumming. I used to play the the drums in college, not that good, and I still kind of putts around with the Congo drums and so on. Oh, wow. Okay. If you had a time machine, would you go back in time or would you go into the future? 100% back in time. I would go back to the industrial age. I, I just think it was just fascinating how machinery came in and and just automated things. It, I think it was a magical period. Okay, nice. Of all the places you've traveled to then, where's your favorite place? 
I would say it's Africa. I mean, uh, South Africa, Tanzania, Kenya. I mean, the the safari piece of it is, is just a is just a magical experience. You know, you're standing there and, and a, as a visitor and as a guest looking at what's happening is just awe-inspiring. Okay. Uh, so another favorite then. So what's the favorite item you've bought in the past year? A favorite item I've bought? I got a, a, a set of glasses that also had a speaker embedded in it. This was actually by Bose. Um, very interesting and amazing sound quality. And with a microphone as well, by the way. And these are kind of nice looking sunglasses with embedded wow. embedded speakers and microphone. Very interesting. Okay. A bit more serious then. Who's who's your mentor or who, who have you been most inspired by? Various people at different stages. I would say the one of the former CEOs of SAP, who I work with, reported to for, for many years, Henning Kagerman. Just a brilliant businessman, but even more so kind of thoughtful, high integrity. And, and he and I just spent a lot of time together on how to move a very large, complex company and, and just learned a lot from him and, and continue to do so. Okay. What piece of career advice do you wish you'd given to your younger self? <laughs> I'd say rather than people overthink their career moves. And, and, and I early in my career, I probably did that as well. You know, if you're in your 20s, unless you strike it rich and stop working, which even if you strike it rich, you should not stop working, you have 40 years to work. Mm-hmm. It's a marathon. You have five, six, seven different careers. You can mess up a couple of them, no problem. So think of your life as a career uh, with a long arc as opposed to a series of jobs and and kind of how do I get the next job? Am I getting a raise? Am I not getting a raise? Think a few years out and you'll think about the world differently. All right. So what piece of advice have you taken, used, and then shared with others? I would say the piece of advice that I got was to have a a thicker skin, (laughs) if you will. This was a few years ago, where, you know, not to react as much to what people say. Mm-hmm. Things are never as good as they seem, but things are also never as bad as they seem. <laughs> yeah. And and so kind of giving people that I work with now to not react so much either one way or the other way, right? And to step back and 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 have a different perspective. So that helped me and it took me a while as well and and I hope it helped others. Okay. What one thing do you wish you'd invented or or wish you could invent? Internet. <laughs> <laughs> the internet would have been would have been awesome or I think uh, the electric car would have been fantastic as well. Um, I mean those have been such, you know, transformative at least in the recent recent memory. Okay. So, what's the weirdest food you've ever eaten? Fish head curry. And it's not that weird. It, it, it just and this was in is in, is in Asia, and, and I was mm-hmm. at a customer event, and this big bowl came in where it was just the head, and, uh, and and I just couldn't bring myself, and so I ordered something else, and I and I told our customer, I said, I'm sorry if you get offended by this, you don't buy our software, I'm gonna willing to deal with that, but I need to order something else. <laughs> he laughed and he was fine. Oh, good, he did good. become a customer, so it was good. okay. But even better. Okay, a really serious question. 
if you were an ice cream, what flavour would you be? Cookies and cream, hands down. Oh, okay. That's a, you've, that's, I think you've thought that one through. What was the, when was the last time you used cash and what was it for? Farmer's market, probably five, six weeks ago in, back home in, in Palo Alto. Okay. All right. And most of, most of them took cash. This one said no, which surprised me. So I had, I had like $6 in my pocket and walked out. Okay. Right. Final question. This is Brian's favorite. He always has to ask this to close the show. If you have to sing karaoke, which song do you pick? <laughs> I, I wish I'm, I, I think I've done karaoke once. Probably Roxanne, Police. Oh, okay. That's it's just this is the first piece of it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, and in fact, you're the first one that's actually sung for us. So there you go. Fabulous. <laughs> Thank you, Zia. So how can our listeners learn more about you and connect with you? Look, the VMware website is there. I'm on LinkedIn as well. And uh, look, thanks for the opportunity. This has been a lot of fun. It's great to have this conversation and kind of think about a broader set of things. So appreciate it. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Zia. As always, if we can help you in any way, please talk with your VMware account team. Or you can connect with us directly through LinkedIn. Just search for Brian Hayes or Matthew O'Neill at VMware. You can also follow me on Twitter at Matthew O'N or our podcast on Twitter at DBTBpod. And you can find our show notes at don'tbreakthebankpodcast.com. If you like our podcast and can leave us a review and comment on Apple Podcasts, that'd be really appreciated. And if you have any ideas about future episodes or would even wish to appear as a future guest, please do get in touch. We hope you can join us again next time. Please do take care.